Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and 22 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves." Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, I pray now that you would pour your Holy Spirit through me, that these words might truly become your living word to your people. And I pray that you would open up each of our hearts and minds that we might receive that word exactly in the place that we need to hear it. For we pray this in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen. I love to eat. Anyone who knows me well knows that one of my absolute favorite things to do in life is to enjoy good food. In fact, before I got married, one of my primary criteria for a wife was someone who, when we went out to dinner, did not always order a salad, but who did always order dessert. After all, if we couldn't enjoy the love of good food together, then what was really the point? But alas, I'm no longer in my 20s or my 30s, and I can no longer consume calories at the rate I once did without paying a heavy price. But I still love to eat. That's why my favorite image of heaven will always be the great messianic banquet that goes on for all eternity. I mean, what could be better than that? Of course, even if I did not love food quite so much, eating would still be a necessity. 
After all, no matter how much food we eat in any given day, we still wake up the next morning with hungry bellies. Indeed, perhaps our most defining characteristic as human beings is that we are perpetually hungry creatures. Of course, we don't just hunger for food, do we? No, we hunger for love and intimacy. We hunger for friendship and fulfillment. We hunger for acceptance and approval. We hunger for success and for security. We hunger for bigger and for better and for more. Oh, how we hunger for more. And yet, no matter how much of these things we get, and most of us have quite a bit, it still often seems that, as Mick Jagger once sang, we just can't get no satisfaction. But this is not how God intended life to be. Before that old serpent came along and things took a dive, or should I say a fall, God had placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in paradise, where God provided everything they needed to live, all the food they could eat. And they lived in intimate communion with God. I mean, that's actually what it means to be in paradise. The word paradise comes from an old Persian word that means the king's garden, a place where in ancient days a a king might take somebody they truly want to honor and make feel special, and they would spend some intimate time there with them in that beautiful place. And Adam and Eve, they were living in the garden of the king of all creation basking in the light of God's presence. And in that garden with God, everything was sacramental. You see, sacraments are physical things that embody God's grace to us. They are God's life-giving word given to us in a tangible form. St. Augustine described them as visible signs of an invisible grace. Sacraments remind us that all of creation is a gift, a blessing intended to bring us into communion with God. They direct our attention away from ourselves and back to the one who made us. Sacraments are are like windows through which the grace and the love of God are revealed to us and made real for us. And in that garden with God, everything was a sacrament of God's blessing. Well, except for one thing, of course. The fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden was forbidden. And so the serpent comes along, twisting God's words, sowing seeds of doubt, turning Adam and Eve's thoughts away from God's abundant goodness and generosity to the one limitation that God had set for them. 
God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what God had said, and Eve knew it, but the damage had already been done. For God's goodness and wisdom had been called into question. And we all know what happened next. They took and ate. Truth is, the serpent continues to call out this question to us through the voice of our fallen world, although we know it in many different forms, continuing to tempt us to rebel against God's commandments and limitations. Did God really say that money is the root of all evil? Did God really say that sex is bad? Did God really say that it's wrong to drink a glass of wine? Did God really say that that you shouldn't enjoy any of the finer things in life? What a cosmic killjoy. God must not want you to have any fun in life. There's nothing wrong with getting what you want in life. Stop living in the dark ages. Be enlightened. If it feels good, do it. Go ahead. Take a bite. The serpent is is so insidious, constantly tempting us to doubt God's goodness by twisting God's words and making them sound absurd. And the serpent urges us to use our own judgment about what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. After all, it insists, we are all actually independent, autonomous beings who are fully capable of making the best decisions for ourselves in life. And we take the bait. The reason the serpent's words are are so effective is that they cause us to take our eyes off of God and put them on ourselves. They, They turn our focus onto our hunger and suggest a multitude of ways in which we might satisfy it. But most of all, they tempt us to see the world and all that is in it as an end in and of itself. As if everything in creation exists simply to satisfy our hunger, to meet our needs as we see fit. And as a result, despite all the incredible blessings that God has given us, We usually end up pitching our tent underneath the one thing that we do not have and complain about what is missing in our lives. According to the Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, the original sin is not primarily that humanity disobeyed God but that we ceased to be hungry for God and God alone. We cease to see all of life as a sacrament of communion with God and to receive it all with thanksgiving. 
For beneath all disobedience in the end is ingratitude. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit from that tree, instead of their eyes being truly opened as the serpent had promised, they instead became blind to the sacramental character of the world. And everything became ordinary. Shmeman says that the fruit from that one tree, whatever else it may signify, was different from every other fruit in the garden. For it alone was not blessed by God and offered to humanity as a gift. It's the symbol of the world loved for its own sake rather than as a sacramental gift pointing to its creator. And therefore, eating of it was condemned to be merely communion with itself alone rather than with God. And as a result, the world became opaque to our eyes, no longer permeated by God's presence, no longer a means of communing with God. Humanity lost the ability to see the abundant blessings of God in our midst. And so rather than becoming enlightened, Adam and Eve became doomed to wander in darkness, groping around for a paradise they could no longer see. Their communion with God shattered. And therefore their hunger became insatiable. For behind all hunger and all desire is a hunger and a desire for God. And ever since, human beings have tried just about everything imaginable to satisfy that hunger. Food, sex, drugs, alcohol, money, possessions, work, busyness, power, popularity. But none of these things are ever going to satisfy us because they can only offer the appearance of life rather than life itself. And in the end, they can all only lead to death. But thanks be to God that that was not the end of the story. But the good news of the gospel is that God did not abandon us to this fatal exile of blind, relentless hunger. For into the darkness of our despair, God sent a light. The light of the world, God's only Son. And in Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam, the sacramental character of life is restored to us again. For Jesus lived on our behalf a life of grateful obedience and humble dependence on his Father. In fact, when Jesus himself was tempted by Satan, 
to satisfy his own hunger in a way that was not blessed by God. Jesus said, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because Jesus lived in perfect communion with his Father. And in giving us the sacrament of communion, Jesus is inviting us to participate in his relationship with the Father. So when we come to this table with thanksgiving, we are communing with God through Jesus Christ. That's why another word for the sacrament of Holy Communion is the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. See, to be thankful is to humbly acknowledge our dependence on God. It's it's to turn our attention away from our hungry souls and toward the one who feeds us. You see, even our daily hunger was intended to be a, a sacrament of God's grace, pointing us to the one who is the source of all life and the one from whom all blessings flow. That is why the the sacrament of communion is appropriately one in which we are fed. After all, it was by taking and eating that which was not blessed by God, that which was not offered to humanity as a gift that paradise was lost and the world became opaque to us, our communion with God shattered. Therefore, it is by taking and eating what is blessed by God, what is offered to us as a gift, that we are restored once again. And when we continue to come to this table with thanksgiving and receive the true bread of life that comes from heaven, Jesus Christ himself, then the world becomes transparent to God's presence and goodness once again. And when we live Eucharistically, in joyful gratitude for all of God's blessings, then almost anything in our lives has the power to become sacramental. The gleeful laugh of a small child, the musical chatter of the birds, a warm embrace of a loved one, a phone call with an old friend, a a peaceful walk through a park, the stunning leaves on the autumn trees, Seeing your son score a goal in a soccer game. The sincere prayers of a four-year-old. Lydia, I'm talking about you. The luscious taste of a chocolate molten lava cake. Enjoying a meal around a table with good friends. Even the smallest, most ordinary seeming things can become a means of communion with God when we live a sacramental life, a life of grateful awareness 
of God's abundant blessings in our lives. And when we do this, we discover that we are not really east of Eden after all. In his book, The Luminous Dusk, my former professor, Dale Allison, tells of an unusual experience he had many years ago. He writes, One mid-afternoon, when I was 24 years old, I walked by my apartment window, which framed a garden in the cemetery next door. I noticed that the scene which I had looked at often enough to pay no more attention, was somehow magically transfigured. Everything was self-shining as my eyes saw not the surface of things, but through them. The trees and tulips were colored jewels, the air a clear crystal, the boulders, in the words of Ezekiel, stones of fire. The whole multicolored bliss was a sea of glass, each object a stained glass window, a preternatural brilliance, a slowly breathing radiance, intense yet painless, the essence of beauty suffused everything, and a thought arose in my mind. The expulsion from Eden was only a dimming of vision. We are even yet in paradise. Do you see? There is no ordinary. The king's garden is all around us for those who have eyes to see. Now, I know that for many of you, it is very difficult to see the blessings of God in your life right now with with all that is going on in our world and some of the difficulties and challenges that you are experiencing in your life. But in Jesus Christ, God's light, the light of the world, has come among us so that our eyes might be opened once again. For Jesus himself is the ultimate sacrament of God. God's life-giving word given to us in the flesh. And through him, we are able to see the world once again as it was created, the way God intended as a gift, pointing us back with grateful hearts to our creator. And when we come to this table with thanksgiving and we partake of Christ's own eternal life, which is the only thing that can satisfy our hunger and give us life. 
Well, then that great banquet in paradise has already begun. Amen.